0: Hi, I'm Patrick McPriarty. And I'm Christopher Lynch. And together, we are the hosts of Windy Windy City City Historians. Historians. On this podcast, we will share and discuss Chicago history
1: and some great Chicago stories.
0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Windy City Historians podcast,
1: episode three. Herbs in Orto? Sponsored by Rapunzel. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. No E. Created by two high school friends toward improving financial literacy, offering simulated financial trading competitions and scholarships. Check out their mobile app and interviews of Miles and Brian in the press. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. So Chris... We finally made it to episode three with John Swenson.
0: I'm exhausted. <laughs> it's like we climbed Everest or something.
1: My brain hurts, that fire hose that we keep talking about. Of it's a lot of
0: information, and have a cup of coffee or a cup of tea, and you got to think about it.
1: Well, you had said a friend of yours listened to the first episode and was partway through it.
0: Yes, my friend Rick was listening to it on the train, and he thought, well, I'll check Facebook. And then he was like, "Holy moly! I gotta <laughs> stop, stop multitasking, and just listen."
1: It's pretty dense. I think in, a good, in a good way, though. Yes, in people. A good way. So far, the reaction has been well received, mm. and we hope that well, that will continue with this third episode. "Herbs in Orto."
0: Your question, which uh, means I don't want to pretend I'm a Latin scholar. But I actually looked this up. "Herbs in Orto" means city in a garden.
1: And as you told me earlier, that is the motto on the seal of the city of Chicago.
0: Yes. And it is an interesting... Well, let me just say that it'll make sense. Once you listen to episode three, it'll totally make sense why we picked Herbs and Orto.
1: And we expect to then explain what the significance of this Marquette Mound that Swenson refers to in...
0: Episode two
1: finding the place called Chicago and what it means for Chicago.
0: Yes. So I can't wait to hear episode three and I already know what it's about. This time I promise the two part
1: interview with John Swenson will be completed in episode three.
0: We're not going to go for four or five.
1: (laughs) I mean, I think we have a big enough container this time.
2: I got the book called spirits in stone. It was paging through it and I, Found this whole chapter by David Johnson. He is a retired high school teacher yeah. in Poughkeepsie, New York, and he's been a professional archaeologist for about fifty years. <laughs> and he's worked for many years on these stone structures, which of course are they're all over New England. And he apparently is kind of unique. See, because remember, establishment science doesn't believe anything that you can't hit with a hammer.
1: Right, right.
2: <laughs> Anyhow, I'm reading this chapter and I'm saying, gee whiz, here's a guy who uses dowsing, and I I can dows, and I've used it on occasions. So somebody figured out there's something on the order of 200,000 miles of these stone walls. Wow. And they don't go anywhere as far as a terrestrial person on the surface of the earth sees. Dave Johnson is one of the few who has figured out that there's an association with the permeability of the rock strata below.
1: Oh, so there are kind of markers for what is below the surface.
2: Yes, that's that's right. So the water flows. And then, of course, if you want a well dug, you call a dowser and he'll tell you. And I've Worked with a couple of them. You can get a lot of information how deep the stratum is, where this water is, and the rate of flow and all
1: that. Oh, that's amazing.
2: So anyhow, this information is out there and it's accessible. So Patrick, could you explain what dowsing means?
1: Well, I kind of had an inkling, but I had to look it up. And the definition from Webster's is dowsing is a technique for searching for underground water minerals, or anything invisible by observing the motion of a pointer, traditionally a fork stick, now more often paired blunt wires.
0: Oh, I've seen that in like documentaries on PBS where someone goes out with these pieces of wire and they cross at the point when the water's detected.
1: Right, so it's having that openness to sensation that allows you to feel what's beneath the, the soil to find say water for a well or something of that nature. And John also enlists David Johnson, who uses this technique in his archeology span and has been quite accurate in detecting these underwater flows or increased permeability as he puts it in his reports.
2: Hmm. Fascinating. So anyhow, I uh, was reading the chapter and I realized it was written by David Johnson on how he uses dowsing to evaluate sites and found a strong association between underground water flows, which he terms increased permeability to water of the rock layer so that he has been able to identify association between features on the ground which may or may not be natural, with features underground. Hmm. And his accuracy is quite remarkable. I sent an email to Dave Johnson. This would have been back in January, I think, of 18. And uh, I told him about this huge platform mound Hmm. in Olympia Fields And I said, given your use of dowsing in evaluation of archaeological sites, this is probably something you might want to know about. Within 24 hours, I had a response from him. He said, I'm going to be working this summer out in Alberta and Montana, and I'll be coming back through Chicago, and I'll stop off and survey this site for you.
1: And this was like a cold email, right? You hadn't been introduced to him. You just sent it to him and thought this would be interesting. And here he responds. That's awesome.
2: Well, anybody who publishes and and states in print that he's a dowser and uses it for useful purposes, not just for recreation. Yeah. That's somebody I'd like to know. (laughs) I've I've met a few people like that.
1: That's great. David Johnson.
0: Yes, the eminent archaeologist. Right. Hasn't he done work in like Peru and uh, South America?
1: He's received a, a National Geographic Research and Exploration Award in 1998 on the geology, hydrology, and the NASCA lines in Peru for his work there. He also has an honorary doctorate degree from the National University of Engineering in Lima, Peru.
0: And you were telling me, Patrick, that his papers are at the Smithsonian.
1: So, yes, the Smithsonian Institute is willing to serve as the repository for his research collection.
0: And they don't just do that for anybody?
2: No. So then um, we corresponded in trying to set a date when he would be coming through Chicago it wound up. The date for him to be coming through Chicago was Sunday, August 12th. So we made a date to meet out at the Spirit Trail Park on this 10 o'clock Sunday morning.
1: Spirit Trail selected because of the research you've done, right?
2: That's where the original Chicago was. It's
1: the place the Indians called Chicago.
2: Right. And the principal feature of it, which I discovered, was this enormous this Indian mound. Well, of course, when Dave Johnson came up, I was waiting there for him along this road. It's called, I think, Greenwood Drive. It runs right along the north boundary of the Spirit Trail woods. They're trying to find me. There's a commuter railroad station right there at 211th Street. So they went in and the attendant at the train station said, nobody goes into that park. I mean, there's a little signboard there. Yeah. But there's no obvious trails or anything. It's just a thick, you know, it's third-growth third, third growth woods. Right, right. Dave Johnson and Mike showed up, and I, this SUV with New York plates, so.
1: I'm imagining them driving in like the professionals in this, you know, black SUV or something like that. But, it was brown. Uh. <laughs>
2: so anyhow, so that is the thing that, I was asking myself, well, why did they build this mound here? Yeah. Because I think even before I got involved with Dave Johnson, I was reading people who were saying there may be an energy pattern. There may be a flow of energy of some sort uh, at this site. Sure. Okay. So I got up my pendulum and asked, Whatever, the universe.
1: The ancestors or whatever. Well, yeah. Whatever. Yeah.
2: The the source. Yeah. A lot of people call it the source. Okay. I said, you know, is there an energy pattern under this mound? And the answer is yes. And I drew out the sketch and Dave Johnson confirmed that.
1: Oh that's mm. <clears throat> so being on site then and dowsing it.
2: Yeah. He came out and he showed me his field notes. I mean this is a mound that's been there for like a thousand years. They walked around and they wow. and he had GPS equipment and okay. all that stuff. So I mean he's highly scientific.
1: And they must have been out there for
2: they were in the woods for pretty close to 2 hours. Yeah. So he came out and and he said there's a ramp sloping up mm-hmm. to this mound and then he said Because it's shown on the sketch map that there was a trench that was cut across, what, two meters wide. And he said, you can still see the trench. Well, these guys had no business digging into it. A professional archaeologist would not do that. But anyhow.
1: Oh, you think that might have been dug by somebody earlier or something?
2: I think so. They were probably hoping to find some pots. Would the mound be clear of trees for its
0: primary function and then maybe falls into obscurity and new people migrate to the area and they know there's something special about it. By that time, there might be growth.
2: Well, yeah, because bear in mind, this is an artificial construct. Mm -hmm. It's a huge pile of earth. Right. It's on a floodplain in a river valley and there are hills on both sides of the stream. So there was a lot of earth that was available so all they had to do was dig it up and put it in baskets and carry it over to the site and dump it. So uh, during the active cultural period, of course, it would have been kept clear because, first of all, it was a pile of earth. Right. There w- weren't any trees growing on it. Of course. But once the site was, in effect, abandoned, mm-hmm. yes, you would expect plants would be growing on it. And it doesn't take long for a plot of bare ground to be colonized by Weeds and trees, you name
0: it So after we talked to John Swenson a couple times, Patrick, you and I said, we got to get down to the Spirit Trail Park and see this mound.
1: Yeah, it's a forest preserve, but not in the Chicago sense of it. it there's really no trails leading in or out of it.
0: Yeah, park is kind of a misnomer. So we picked an October day. You and I were driving around trying to find a way in. Finally saw this sign, Spirit Trail Park on a side road in a residential neighborhood.
1: And then the neighbor came over.
0: Well, she thought we were with the parks department. No, ma'am, we're historians. Which is sort of like in the Blues Brothers when the woman says, are you from the police? And the Blues Brothers say, no, ma'am. Or musicians. Yes. So I'm sure she thought we were completely out of our minds.
1: <laughs> so she played along pretty well and actually gave us a lot of good information about the area.
0: The stuff she was telling us, she was revealing secrets but you and I like couldn't believe it.
1: All right, we're walking into Spirit Trail Park.
3: I'm yeah. from the park district? Oh no. I live across the street.
1: We're just visiting a couple of historians looking through the, the, the Historians? Park yeah. This, this platform mound that's over here. There Cults. is
3: a mound back there. Yeah. My sons called it Bunker Hill.
1: Here it would have been the cultural center or oh, spiritual center.
3: Oh, that's fascinating. Oh my gosh.
1: That history isn't well known. Just, we,
0: just maybe a handful Well, of it should be. Well that's, well, that's why we're here.
3: Well, that's interesting. You're historians. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah.
0: How long have you lived here, ma'am? Since
3: 1961. And your sons Uh, used
0: to play here? It's
3: the late 60s and 70s, and they couldn't play here anymore because we had hippies camping out. (laughs) The pot smell was so strong you could (laughs) get high if you walked in Uh here. Uh, Now they're 55 and 60. (laughs) But When my husband and I first started looking for a home, this was all woods all the way back to where Butterfield Creek, there's like a bluff. There are houses built there now. It was woodland, but you could walk. It was so beautiful. So many wildflowers, mm. so many. And wildlife, and the developer had donated this land to be kept as, as woodland.
1: Uh-huh.
3: And because of all the building, It's different now. We used to have red fox. You don't see them anymore. It's really a shame. I guess people have done our best to destroy what must have been an incredible, incredible landscape here in Illinois. Yeah. The park district bought this land from the village, but the village had it for years and years. Did you
0: ever see ramps growing here?
3: You know oh, what those I have are? them growing on the edges. Yeah, You do. lots of wild onions here.
1: So Chris, Laura said, yeah, there are wild onions everywhere here. And that's significant.
0: I, I got the impression it was almost a nuisance. They were just all over the place. Right. This is very revealing. It's one of those things, uh, whether it's history or journalism, if you got boots on the ground and you're, Walking around, you never know what you're going to find. We had no idea we were going to have this encounter and learn this bit of information. This is huge, Patrick. This is the smoking gun.
1: And it just reinforces this uh, new history that John has resurrected, that there is a second portage to the Chicago area crossing that continental divide between the Great Lakes watersheds and the Mississippi, and that short portage between Frankfurt and Matson
0: along the Lincoln Highway. Yeah. So let's jump back to Spirit Trail Park.
1: I'm sorry, what was your name? I, I...
3: my name's Laura. Well thanks
1: for coming over. Well History. I
3: was ready to jump on you. <laughs> That's all right. Back planning some horror. Oh no no. no.
1: Oh gosh, no. We think this is pretty amazing. We wanted to to walk well, up and go up on cause the mound.
3: Something to be done here yeah. to preserve this. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Laura. Thanks very much. as dense as I expected
0: like Yeah I'm thinking where's the buttonfield how are we gonna get over that? Okay Patrick what's the best way to find the mound?
1: Well I think I, it's over there, yeah right? I think it's got it this is the open area it's gotta be over in here somewhere.
2: Okay.
1: That's not right there. Oh here's a hint of a trail here.
2: You can really hear the roads get even though we can't see
1: it. So. Oh, it's wet and marshy down here. Not standing water.
0: So we know from the neighbor that, that this might be man made whale. Hey, Patrick, let's try
2: this one. Oh.
1: There's a deer, a buck. Wow. A pretty good rack on that thing.
0: Very good. I hope he doesn't embed that
1: wreck in us. No, I think he just seems to stay clear of us. He's not moving very fast, though. I can still see him. It's just up here. Oh, yeah. See him. into some
2: thorns.
1: Is it there or up here?
0: Oh.
1: I don't know. I'm just seeing houses there, right?
0: So I see a kind of a slope in the terrain this direction.
1: That just uh, the creek there. See, it looks too close to the houses. Oh, okay. Is my thinking, but. It didn't look like a very big piece of land on Google Maps, but it feels much bigger, doesn't it? Oh, Here's Butterfield Creek.
2: Oh, I see the bottom. Straight think, ahead.
1: think that's it, right up there?
0: Yeah. I think we could access it from the other spot. Because
1: that looks like it's it right there. elevated, right?
0: Yeah, that's got to be it. Historians.
1: Chris after we visited the mound in October and we'd gotten on top of it and checked it out taken a bunch of photos including I might add the photos that are on our website, on their About page.
0: You mean the unsmiling mugs of us (laughs) looking very stern and serious for some reason?
1: Well, we're on a very spiritual space. Maybe we shouldn't do that on the top of the mound. Well, that's true. Boop around. Fair enough. In any event, when we get back, we have a couple weeks, and then John Swenson sends on the report that David Johnson did based on his August visit yeah, he did to the a, mound. he
0: did a site visit in August, uh, spent a couple hours on the mound with GPS equipment and took lots of photos and measurements.
1: He had a colleague there helping him out.
0: Swenson was waiting for this report. So a few weeks went by, a couple months went by. And
1: so we get his formal report about the
0: mound. And you were on the road to Ohio, and then at Thanksgiving...
1: I called you up. I had some windshield time and wanted to share what I had read in the report about the Indian mound that's there at Spirit Trail Park, which was pretty amazing, more than we could have expected, not just the physicality of the mound.
0: Right. And so you said, oh, by the way, Chris, I talked to Dave Johnson and I read the report he sent and the mound is in alignment with the winter solstice. The summer solstice and the rising of the Pleiades.
1: Right. It was pretty amazing. I, I didn't quite I never expected anything quite like this. No, no. And so that sunrise on the winter solstice is when that ramp is in alignment
0: on the morning to, to of, that, the, of the solstice. At
1: at the horizon at mm-hmm. 122 degrees. And then in the flip side on the summer solstice sunset 21st of June it's in alignment as well and then that winter rising of the Pleiades on the horizon
0: yeah the star cluster that had significance to the native peoples that on the solstice evening the Pleiades rises in alignment with the mound. and when we had been to the mound, I did note that there was an east-west alignment but I wasn't thinking in terms of a Stonehenge type calendar it was just something I just happened to notice from a non-archaeological point of view. That's how it laid out as far as Butterfield Creek. And-
1: right, and you know we talked about dowsing, and the one thing that he also determined was the fact that there was an intersection of two water flows beneath the surface in the strata. The mound is built right over the top of that intersection,
0: which has spiritual meaning for of peoples.
1: Right. And that's consistent with his other findings and work that he's done, walls in New England.
0: That these walls that kind of go, seem to go nowhere, but... And they don't enclose anything. Right, but then it, he determined that they actually are markers of underground water systems.
1: And then down in Peru and Chile, where these earthworks that are done by earlier cultures demarcate some of those below-surface water flows.
0: I think the jargon for it, or more accurately, Dave Johnson's own terminology for that is the permeability.
1: Exactly. Increased permeability is what, what I remember. And the other interesting thing, I called up David Johnson after we got the report, and he wasn't so interested in doing an interview. However, I asked him, been maybe almost a thousand years since the mound was built, could those water flows beneath the surface so that permeability change and he sort of laughed at me for the question in that you know in geologic time a thousand years is is a blink of of an eyelash it's a second it's it's nothing and so there hasn't been any change to the strata down there since maybe before the ten thousand years of the last ice age or even before that so That mound was there specifically to mark that spiritual spot.
0: And also in the email to Swenson, Dave Johnson, who lives in upstate New York, said, we've done the calculations. We know it's in alignment, but it might be fun to have an eyewitness or two. Check it out. So now we had a goal, but we also had a challenge because this is Chicago in winter. You never know what kind of weather you're going to get. But Johnson also said that the solstice is really a stopping point. So you have a window, 20th, the 21st, and 22nd. Right. So, but now we knew where the mound was. We were two historians with a mission.
1: And without all the leaves in the trees, it was much easier to see where the heck the mound was.
0: So we said, well, we've got to go down there.
1: It's 5.30 in the morning. Chris is going to pick me up to drive down to Spirit Trail Park. Hopefully it's clear skies.
0: By the way, there's no reason to ever be up this early.
1: No, I know. There's people that get up at this time all the time.
0: But on a Saturday? Yeah. Forget about it. Almost there.
3: Destination is on your right. Spirit Trail Park. Arrived. So
1: here are the notes from Dave Johnson. It appears one of the reasons for the ramp is that this ramp is aligned to 122 degrees southeast, which is in alignment with the winter solstice sunrise and in the opposite direction, summer solstice sunset. If you can get someone to go to the mound before sunrise and watch keep the following in mind. 1. Stand at the north end of the mound and look along its length. 2. They should be able to see the sunrise. 3. The solstice is a three-day standstill. So if the weather is bad on one day, they could do it on one of the other two days. We had a ton of cloud cover the last two days. So 22nd, hopefully this will work. Four, they need to photo what they see. I hope you can get someone to do this. Dave.
0: Well, I guess that would be us.
1: That's us. Chris Lynch, Pat McBriarty. uh,
0: It's almost 7 a.m., in the CBS parking lot <laughs> Which by the way would have been very convenient for Father Marquette because it's not that far from his campsite
1: He might have gotten the medicine to get rid of that amoebic dysentery that's here. That's right.
0: That's right. <laughs> Got a prescription. I mean, it was really dark. Yeah, and, and now I mean you can practically read outside. Yeah.
1: So we should probably
0: go hike in. Yeah, let's do it. 31 degrees. A bit nippy, but no wind. We are uh, approaching the
1: mound. I think this spot here is about where we want to be. We're looking right down the ramp. Yes. Let me get out the tripod and set up the cameras. So I think I got the camera aligned at 122 degrees.
0: Okay. One minute until sunrise, 7.15 a.m. December twenty second, twenty eighteen. Okay. Here's the deer again. They're they're looking at us. Look at that. Crazy. Three white-tailed deer.
1: Oh, there's a fourth one. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and a fifth back here. And they're coming on
0: the mountain. Look, they're coming up to us. They're walking up the mountain. Oh yeah.
1: They're really they're pretty, walking pretty through. inquisitive, aren't they?
0: Oh, yeah. God. Look, they're coming up to us.
1: This one's very brave. It's within about thirty feet of us. Boy, I've I've never
0: right I've never seen a deer approach me like that. No, I know. Shaman spirit. I don't know. Wow. Seven or eight deer. I, that's, That was very unusual. I've never, my cat won't even come near me. I've never had a deer approach us like that.
1: So we can't really see the sunrise with all the trees.
0: No. I thought there'd be some broken clouds.
1: But... Well, that was the prediction. But right. it Looks like we're getting stunned. It is 724. 10 minutes past the predicted sunrise.
0: Unfortunately, it's pretty overcast.
1: Well, this is kind of disappointing. So we're really not gonna get any confirmation.
0: Well, we have confirmation. The GPS coordinates tell us it's in alignment to the solstice, which we never thought of the astro physics behind it. Coming here in the dead of winter, the, mount's the mount's bigger so without all the leaves, yeah. Very big. You really feel the height above Butterfield Creek over there. Yeah. How about this, Patrick? We might be the first people in a thousand years to be standing on this mound at the solstice time there you think, go. thinking in terms of the cosmic wonder of it all somebody felt strongly enough that this was important that they built this massive mound
3: Okay,
1: it would be quite an enterprise
0: and think of all the labor involved it's baskets of mud and clay someone put a lot of effort into building this they did that because this Alignment with the Sun meant something. Maybe it put them in alignment with the universe.
1: When this was originally built There wouldn't have been any trees on it,
0: right? Oh, certainly. Yeah, certainly there'd yeah. be no trees on here I'm sure if the astronomer or shaman had any clout if there was trees in the way of his astronomical readings they would come down Very possibly and They didn't have access to that handy iPhone. This was their iPhone.
1: Help them figure their calendar, right? That reassurance that, okay, after this day, the day should start getting longer without having any of the science, and you can tell when that is, that would be really powerful.
0: And it was important enough that the Christian calendar is built on the solstice.
1: Really? I didn't know that.
0: Christmas was picked by the church fathers to be on December 25th, because that's when the sun was rising. Uh The solstice, it was pagan. Sure. They knew it. Yeah. To this day, the world still gets jazzed up about the solstice. They may just not necessarily know why. There's something about the light coming back. There's a hope to that.
1: Yeah, for for sure.
0: For humanity. And this mound helps confirm that.
1: We didn't get what we wanted, but we got some decent stuff, I think. Yeah. Here's some maple leaves.
0: This was not a waste of time. Okay, back to civilization. Here's what I want to know, Patrick. How many people drive past this? And there's the mound, plain as day. How many people see it?
1: Well, it's obvious in the winter.
0: I think it being camouflaged is what saved it.
1: And also being so close to Butterfield Creek. You're not going to build housing right on the creek.
0: That floods. Yeah. Did you see how low the water levels were? Yeah. Because we were here in October.
1: But there was still enough to float a canoe. That is true. In Butterfield Creek.
0: Yeah. And the current was flowing east.
1: And we're what? From the portage? Two leagues. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's five
0: miles, right? Two leagues, and it makes a difference.
1: Yeah. Queen City's Historians. So Chris, we're here at the Waveland Island Studio
0: in beautiful North Side Chicago.
1: We need to talk about the astrological connection of this Spirit Trail mound. And you had the idea that we should talk to somebody at Adler Planetarium.
0: I just want to go to the Adler Planetarium cuz it's <laughs> one of the coolest museums in Chicago.
1: Well, you also said we should reach out to Mark Hammergren.
0: He has a wonderful ability to make very complex cosmic issues easy to understand, you know, like Black Hole. It's hard to wrap your head around this stuff. So
1: I thought, well, I'll just send him an email about what we were doing and the astronomy connection, and he was very interested. In fact, he almost went with us down to the mound during the solstice, Uh, but family commitments and being so close to the holidays, he couldn't make it that Saturday on On December 22nd.
0: Yeah, he missed the cloud cover.
1: Yeah, yeah, so probably just as well he didn't go with us, but... (laughs) He was very excited to be involved because the other thing about Mark Hammergren was that he was very close to getting an archaeological degree, so he has that background and affinity for some of this ancient archaeology in addition to a PhD in astronomy.
0: And it was great going down to the Adler and then to be introduced to him and was really a
4: thrill. Yeah, my name is Mark Hammergren. I'm an astronomer here at the Adler. And I've been working here since 2001. So this is coming up on my 18th year of work here at the Adler. Wow. I'm a planetary scientist by training. I specialize in research on asteroids and comets. But I really spend most of my time at the Adler working on science communication. So trying to get the information that we, we discover out to the public. We're
0: excited to talk to you about Chicago history and...
4: We being Wendy City Historians
1: podcast.
0: That's right, and as you know, Patrick and I have been working with John Swenson on this concept of where the place the Indians called Chicago or Chicagua,
1: where it is, and that there's this Indian mound there.
4: Yeah, it's my understanding there were several periods of mound building. So you have the the culture that was that's known as the mound builders. Uh, you also had the uh, in southern Illinois the Cahokia culture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so they also making mounds. Making earthworks like that is a pretty common thing in cultures all around the world.
0: To think about it, if you, to build a mound in alignment with the solstice, I mean, you need someone, a shaman, maybe someone of your equivalent a thousand years ago. Obviously, people that studied the stars had clout.
4: Yeah, they were willing to work over longer timescales. So they didn't have to necessarily build this thing in a month if they wanted to do it over a period of years. Uh, this was very intensive labor. And it's my understanding that a lot of the work was done during seasons where there was perhaps less agriculture to be done, less hunting, mm-hmm. where there was more free time on people's hands. And sociologically, that this was sometimes used by cultures to help control the population, to give them something to do in that, in that time off. And they'd already have a surplus of, of food and and so then what do you do, right? Right, right. So, you know, you got to keep the people occupied doing public works. Probably long before that mountain was built, celebrations of the summer and winter solstice were very important. These were ceremonial, celebratory events, rather than not necessarily great shamanic things. And so they would have known the direction of the, the winter solstice sunrise. So they would have had a rough idea. They could have started building the mound first and then added some site posts to build the ramp. So I think it's fairly straightforward how they could make such an alignment appear in their architecture.
0: And of course, we're talking about a sky that wasn't polluted with lights like our sky.
4: Yeah, not only that, but you also noted the, the presence of trees. The active management of landscapes by Native Americans was really quite widespread, a lot of people have this picture of North America just being full of thick forests because people hadn't been there to cut them down. But in fact, the Native Americans really had managed them actively. They'd, they'd cut down the trees. They'd uh, made fields, used slash-and-burn farming techniques, these kinds of things. So a lot of the populated areas in North America were very heavily managed by them. So that, that's number one. Maybe they had clear sight lines then. They also didn't have things like that railroad embankment yes. that is to the east of this site. Which is site. quite large. Yeah, absolutely, it's yeah. So the Illinois point. Central Railroad, they, they built that back in the 1800s. Yeah. So it's really a miracle that this exists. I've seen maps. Uh, I've, I've looked through some old maps. Mm-hmm. And you do find quite a few Indian mounds uh, located on these maps. Okay. Uh, even in, you know, upper north, north side of Chicago, west side. So the, you have these, these things noted down. I grew up in Waukegan, and I remember going through old city records, looking at maps myself, and there was supposedly an Indian mound visible right off of the Chicago Northwestern Railroad tracks just south of Waukegan, right by a cemetery. And I went looking to see if I could find it, but it had been completely plowed under and built over and subsequent buildings torn down, so there was not a trace remaining.
0: We were fascinated to realize that the Pleiades... Uh, comes to play in
4: this. Yeah, so the, the Pleiades, it's a bright cluster of stars in the constellation of Taurus. And not only is it an interesting-looking thing in the sky, it can kind of look blurry because the small stars, uh, not not incredibly bright stars, are kind of close together. So it's an interesting-looking thing, number one. And number two the rising of the Pleiades, that's been used by many cultures around the world as an indication of a good time to plant crops or to harvest them. So it's a convenient astronomical calendar that anybody can observe and keep track of.
1: Similar to the solstices.
4: Exactly, yeah. And people would not just wait for a solstice to occur, they can count days. Mm -hmm. And so there was a great deal of anticipation, just like we do around the holidays regarding the the ceremonies that would take place.
0: Do you know what the Japanese work for the Pleiades is? Subaru. Yes. (laughs) Yeah,
4: yeah, yeah. You got it. Not just a car company, but one of the largest telescopes in the world uh, located on Mauna Kea is called the Subaru Telescope. I had no idea. And not named after the car company. The,
0: and I was looking at the logo yesterday. The The car in front yeah. of me on Lakeshore Drive was a Subaru, and there you see the stars. That's right. And that symbol, but, in that yeah. symbol. Yes. And that symbol, I guess, it was used by the Japanese um, consolidation of several car companies. And that is what came out of it. Oh, interesting. I think it was like five or six companies that came together to, That's to interesting. form that. So it's in front of us.
4: <laughs> we just don't realize It's on it. the back of my car. I own the Subaru.
1: And Mark, what is the history of astronomy and of stargazing, and, and why became a science? And
4: Well, for one, the sky is visible to everyone, to every culture. Right. And are differences between the Northern Hemisphere and Southern Hemisphere. So you don't necessarily all see the same stars. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, up here in the Northern Hemisphere, all of the cultures, they see the same stars. They see the same planets. They see the same motions. And going back... Oh, gosh, well before any kind of written history. Ever since humans have been on the planet, hundreds of thousands of years, they would have looked up and wondered at the night sky. And you see mysterious things sometimes, comets, giant meteors coming in, these Mm -hmm. kinds of things. People want to explain these. And so they would come up with stories regarding them. Oftentimes, these objects were related to the gods in the untouchable heavens. Or for Native Americans, on the spirits. The spirits, yeah, yeah. So uh, oftentimes celestial objects, usually they were ascribed great importance. Mm -hmm. And then people began noticing that they moved around in certain patterns. Certainly we notice the moon going through its phases month to month. We see the sun go through various motions in the sky as you reach the summer solstice. And then the sun rises further and further south every, every time until you get to the winter solstice. So these were very important, and they noticed the seasonality of it. They noticed the long-term changes. They noticed the patterns in the motions of the planets. I'm kind of imagining, uh,
1: similar to, say, a sundial. After a while, you figure out, okay, what time of day it is. I would imagine that you're attuned to this natural world. You, you would have a better sense of that and and pick up those patterns since you're not distracted by all your right, electronics. Right. Yeah. Or more so. More so than we
4: are today necessarily. Right. Yeah. And before the advent of nighttime lighting. It would have campfires, these kinds of things. The night sky was always there for for everyone to see. So modern astronomy today is really just a continuation of that ancient phenomenon, the the practice of trying to make sense of what we see out there in the nighttime sky. And our modern field of science is all built on a sharing of information and building up on what previous researchers have discovered. Mm -hmm. It's an ongoing human process that really started hundreds of thousands of years ago at least as long as there were humans with brains out there.
0: Mm-hmm. I had a professor in college who said if you want to know what's important to a civilization look to see what the tallest structure is in that civilization and look at Chicago. The largest structure is it's a building built for commerce. Right. So I'm going to call it the Sears the Tower. Sears Tower. Willis <laughs> Tower. It's hard to let go of Sears Tower. It's but going back to when this mound was built this was probably the largest structure in, in that Indian community so obviously the the purpose of it was important to
4: those people absolutely yeah would have been a ceremonial center right. would have been a great place for leaders of that group uh, religious leaders to to talk to crowds yeah just like a stage and also
0: we, we can infer that the the shaman that knew the stars, the astronomer of the Adler back right. in, in that <laughs> era,
4: that would have been an important person. Yeah, oftentimes, oftentimes they, they were, because they were the ones who, well, had the freedom to, to study these, these phenomena, that they were, in, they were probably already in a position of some kind of power because they weren't the ones who had to, uh, you know, gather the roots and tubers. They they were the ones that were privileged to be able to study this information.
0: That could interpret these signs from the sky.
4: Yeah, that's that's another thing. It uh, probably based a lot on personal charisma too. The better the story you can tell, the the more people you impress.
0: So, what can we learn from having this mound as a part of early Chicago as, as a man of science?
4: anything that connects us back to our historical roots in any way and i say our in a very general sense all of humanity right because that's that's our our common heritage and i don't mean to get into you know cultural appropriation that that tells us where we as a human species came from that gives us information that really we can't get much in in any way right now. There are no people alive from those days. There are perhaps oral traditions that survive. In many cases, they've gone completely extinct, though, as our modern culture has wiped them out. But to find this physical evidence and have it presented in such a way that it tells us maybe a little bit about how they saw the universe, that's really cool information, and it just all adds to the story. And as I said to Patrick, as we stood on that mound, that solstice morning,
0: we might be the first people in a thousand years seeking that solstice angle for that purpose. And I felt a connection.
4: It's a fascinating observation there too. I mean,
0: I felt humbled that yeah. I was there in the tradition of these people. Sure. Who were obviously very smart. Yeah. Because history sometimes whitewashes the accomplishments of past cultures. But these were these were people that were tuned with their environment.
1: More so than we are. Today, More so than we are, yeah. In a lot of yep, ways. By
4: necessity, yeah. And
1: and yet what's interesting is here we are at the Adler Planetarium where these calendars that we can use and this connection that we have of wanting to tell stories about the stars and being connected to them in some fashion hasn't changed that much. You know, our technology has, but we're still telling stories about them, they're still important to us and, and so it's all it kind of comes full circle.
4: I think that's a really good summary of what it is we try to do here at the Adler Planetarium is bring these stories out, not just the modern science stories, but also the historical stories. This has always been a very
0: special place.
4: Well, thank you for saying that. And
0: we need people to come to the Adler.:
4: You're welcome anytime.
0: historians. <laughs>
4: Patrick, you know spring
0: is here when you see the farmer's markets.
1: At Daily Plaza. Daily Plaza, Chicago.
0: downtown Chicago. It's really very nice. There's farmer's markets all over Chicago. I usually scouted for asparagus.
1: <laughs> and I will resist from making any asparagus jokes. <laughs> but anyway.
0: Uh, so I was looking at the greens, and I swear to God, I thought my eyes were playing a trick on me because... I walked by the vendor and he has on the cardboard, it's not like some fancy sign, he had written ramps.
1: Oh, sure. John Swanson's ramps.
0: So I walked up to him, I said, I stated the obvious, oh, you're selling ramps. <laughs> and he goes, yeah. I said.
1: Give you like a quizzical look or something?
0: Well, he was like, yeah. I said, well, it's a short season because this was in mid-May. Yeah. And he goes, yeah, the season's going to be shutting down in a couple of weeks. And I knew that because the canopy fills over and then the ramps.
1: uh, As John described
0: horticulturally in the first episode. Right. So I said, wow, this is great. I said, I've actually never seen
1: ramps. Well, we have pictures of them in the presentation John gave at the Chadwick Institute, but we had never seen them. I'd never
0: never seen them. So I turn to the fella and I say, you know, this is where Chicago got its name. Oh, wow. And he looks at me and he goes, excuse me? And I said, <laughs> Chicago or Chicago got its name from this plant. Yeah. And he goes... Allium trachocum. Well, I didn't say that. If I was a Latin scholar or a horticulturist, I would have said that. And he looked at me and he goes, yeah. Are you going to buy some? And kind of wasting his time a little bit, droning on right. about the history of Chicago. And he wasn't particularly yeah, interested.
1: The usual Chicago thing. Are you going to buy anything or what?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Keep moving, pal. I said, well, $5 for four or five? I mean, that's a dollar. I said, of course I'm going to buy them. So I did. I bought about eight of them. They were in a bundle. Uh-huh. And I got to tell you, I was thrilled because, first of all, they smell great.
1: Did you bring some with you? I
0: brought some. I got them in this, this bag here. Okay. So here you go, Patrick. Here are ramps. Oh,
1: wow. And we'll have pictures of these on the website. Yeah. It's a flat green leaf, two to two and a half inches wide by four to six inches long.
0: Yes. And it's kind of a fluted look to it.
1: It actually has a pretty big bulb, uh, bigger than...
0: Yeah, it looks like a a teardrop onion.
1: And it's very white.
0: And then what I noticed is when you smell it, it doesn't smell like an onion, and it kind of smells like garlic, but... I would say maybe a combination of of both of them.
1: Yeah, it has a a mild smell somewhere between a a leek and a scallion and a garlic. And I
0: would say it's a fairly strong smell. So I imagine if you were walking through a field of them, you would probably be able to smell it.
1: Just had a taste of the greens because they're fairly thin.
0: Has kind of a silky feel to it.
1: Yeah, and then the stem coming up out of the ground has a purplish hue to it then goes to the bright green of the
0: leaf what's neat about it is supposedly you can eat all of it you can eat the bulb the leaf the stem you can eat it all and if you want to preserve it if you put it in vinegar they say it makes a wonderful salad dressing that lasts a really long time yeah I was talking to a chef and he was telling me because I I happened to mention that I, I got the ramps and he got all excited because he knows it's a very short growing season and Again, I asked the fellow, where'd you get it? Because I I foraged for it. I got it in the forest.
1: Well, perfect with this whole farm-to-table movement that's going on in Chicago.
0: Right, exactly. I thought it might be fun, Patrick, maybe fry up some of these and just see what they taste like.
1: Yes, let me wash some of these up and we'll get them chopped for the fry pan. Very good. Get rid of the roots off the end. and they're layered just like slicing a little cocktail onion. Try not to get my finger. Just cutting some of the leaves. All right, well, throw a little butter in a pan and we'll try these.
0: All right.
1: So we got the ramps with the, the bulb and the stems and the leaves, just in a little butter in the fry pan
0: Look pretty
1: good. Should we
0: try those? Yeah, it looks great. All right. I'm excited. I have never had Chicago before.
1: (laughs) Fresh, fresh ramps.
0: Yes. Mm.
1: Now, we tried some of the the ball of the ramps, and they were much stronger. But sauteed, they're, they're very mild.
0: Yeah, it seems to reduce so the
1: garlic taste to it.
0: Yeah, it kind of takes it down a notch.
1: And then they have a little bit of a crunch, not quite like celery, but similar.
0: I'm very impressed with the leaves. It, I, I keep on returning the word silky, but that's exactly the texture of it.
1: But they do. They do have a very silky on your tongue.
0: Yeah.
1: It's mm. really got a nice flavor to it.
0: I bet a Frenchman would add a little red wine or something. To yes. It. <laughs> I mean, this is really good.
1: Uh, but you do get a bit of the garlic flavor. sticks with the leaves a little bit better after being sauteed.
0: I got to tell you, I'm, I'm a fan. Yeah. Well, this is a great surprise, Chris.
1: It's awesome that you ran into them and uh, get a taste of ramps or Chicago, it's uh, almost redundant.
0: If you're going to pick it, you got to leave some of it behind so it can grow again the next time.
1: Yes, and I think because this plant is very slow to germinate, best part is the greens. It's best to just trim it, and then the rest of it will grow back by leaving the bulb in the ground. Uh, seeds may take five to seven years to really fill in a complete patch of this wild plant. Look on the Internet. Ramps or Allium trachocum.com. It's where Chicago got its name.
0: So thank you for joining us at our cooking podcast. <laughs> cooking up
1: a little history for you on this third
0: episode. And also I did do some research online, Patrick, and there are several festivals in the Midwest, Canada, and the Appalachia, like literally ramp festivals. Wow. So if anyone's traveling in those particular regions and are curious, uh, just look it up.
1: What a great way to end the third episode.
0: In the tradition of Henri Jatel. Foraging. Foraging for uh, ramps. Yeah. How ironic was it that I found ramps in the middle of Daly Plaza, which is pretty much the center of Chicago culture. Today's Chicago. Today's Chicago.
1: Chicago Maman. We thank John Swenson because it started with talking about a plant ramps in it, his living room with it, his garden behind us and right. his background uh, in horticulture
0: on a beautiful spring day well it's also ironic because when we began this podcast back in may of 2018 it comes full circle we're working on this episode and it just so happens to be mid-may when the ramps are in season
1: and may is when this episode episode three herbs and orto gets released
0: and how appropriate, since the Chicago motto is Herbs in Orto, or City in a Garden. Thanks to John Swenson, perhaps we, the motto should be reversed. It's instead of city in a garden, it was the garden, John Swenson's garden, which led to the city, the original city, Chicago.
1: That gathering place the Indians call it Chicago, yeah. the mound. So going from the dirt and the ramps,
0: studying the origin of of that plant
1: to the stars, yeah. And the original Chicago and Olympia Fields at Spirit Trail Park, and John's history has changed our sense of Chicago and where we came from. And then the fourth episode on the voyageurs, or do you have a title for that? Uh, yet, I do. It's Chris?
0: called Episode Four: La Salle and the Voyageurs. So we will get further into
1: the history, and those courier Du Bois, right? That's right. Like working men of the fur trade.
0: And it's going to be a fun episode, and we'll further explore why Chicago is such an important place and has such a rich history. That we
1: don't have to wait a century for each episode, and we're <laughs> dropping one a month, typically on the last Friday of each month, and hope to continue doing that at least until
0: we can get up into the... 1930s. That's right. So I forward to it, and we hope that you, the listener, tune in. The Windy
1: City Historians Podcast. Audio editing by Christopher Lynch and Patrick McBriarty at the Waveland Island Studios. And special thanks to Jill Hogginson for the idea and branding assistance and... Nate Kennedy, for technical support and specking our audio equipment.
0: Thank you for listening to the Windy
1: City Historians podcast. Episode three, Herbs in Orto.